We come again today to a very special moment in the life of our church, setting aside two men, one as an elder, another as a deacon. I am thankful that this coincided with the D-Now weekend. Young people, I want you to pay attention to this, see what happens, hear what's said. As I look to the coming years, your maturity, your place in the kingdom, Lord willing, these are events that you will see happen frequently as well. And some of you may well be in leadership. So give attention, if you would. I'm going to read from four texts. You may camp at the first, and I would read the others. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Begin reading at verse 1. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A little later in Acts, at the 11th chapter, we find the first mention of Christian leadership as elders. Acts 11:29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And after these early days and the beginnings of local church leadership, toward the end of his life, the Apostle Paul gives directions that have to do with the character traits, the abilities that should be in those who serve as elders or deacons. 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of the overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will they care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, 
so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, like, their wives likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children, their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Now, our Father, help us in these moments that we rightly see, hear, understand, and apply this your word. Help us to realize the joy and the fear of what we engage in this day. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. And I haven't even started preaching yet. Anticipation. We're thankful today, as the ordination of Matt Miller as an elder is connected to Jason Brushwood, as one of the three men who were first elected as elders and who's completed his time. His leadership and care has been what we'd hoped and we would see in faithful leaders. He's stepped down, have at least a year for rest and reflection. We're thankful for the men who continue to serve. We're thankful for our men who continue to serve as deacons, some of them for well over 20 years now. We're thankful for Kyle, whom we'll set aside today for this service and pray he will also have a long and joyful service. One cannot do this as often as I do it without being reminded of realities of the long past. My ordination was a mere 46 years ago. And every time I glance up at that certificate, it is the reminder of what I was set aside to do. And men who for the most part now have gone on home laid hands on me and signed that certificate. And it is a burden and a joyful one, but a reminder of standing within a tradition. Now, tradition has gotten a bad rap. Traditionalism is bad. Tradition is good. Yaroslav Pelikan, who, a scholar of history of Christianity, wrote it this way. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I love that. The living faith of the dead. You even look in our own tradition back to the 1600s in one of the London confessions. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit to the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church if there be any before constituted therein and of a deacon that he be chosen by the like suffrage and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands. We set aside men for two offices today. They are not the same office. They are complementary offices. Deacons, Teach the church 
by serving. Elders serve the church by teaching. And those are essential distinctions to make. Both offices require serving and teaching. One teaches primarily through example, the other primarily through teaching. My brothers who are already serving, already set aside, already ordained, I call upon you once again to hear the word of the Lord and take thought of your privileges and your duties. We follow the example of the early church, my brothers. You're being set aside for required ministries. Just a few considerations. First, practical things matter. I heard a phrase this last week for the first time. It's catchy. You ready? The church at its birth is the church at its best. Now that's, that, that's intriguing. I mean, it's alliterative. It's mostly memorable. I think it was poorly used in the context in which I heard it. Of course, what it's saying is the church in Jerusalem at Pentecost is the best example and model of the church in history. I reserve the right to disagree. I don't think any of us are qualified to make that judgment. The Lord will make that judgment on the final day, not the rest of us. But we must be careful that we don't get the notion that the first church was problem-free. The early church is shown by Luke the historian to be a very real group of people. And when I say real, I mean real. I mean the fact that the church is this fascinating and at times infuriating conglomeration of all kinds of people. We've said it before. Some of y'all are strange. You're a little weird, a little annoying. And I haven't even gotten past the ordained at this point. Literally, a couple of thousand have come to faith on, in Christ on the day of Pentecost. They had already at this point faced persecution in Jerusalem. They were dealing with poverty, trying to care for one another. They'd had a couple of phonies try to pass themselves off as real, Ananias and Sapphira. And the Lord does the first church discipline. This didn't go through stages. The Lord simply struck them dead. Which reminds me, the Lord takes seriously what you say you are and you will do when you're part of the people of God. Hmm. Now comes another crisis. Widows in the church who needed support. And here read this, and for us it's not a familiar context. Hellenists and Hebrews, what in the world is that about? Well, the early church was composed of folks who were Jewish. Many of them had lived within the nation of Israel, but many of them had lived out in the diaspora. They were scattered throughout the empire. They were Greek speakers, not Hebrew speakers. And they came from places that the more conservative and certainly more serious Jews of their day wouldn't have lived if they could help it. So whenever they gathered together as a church, who'd have thought? Somebody thought they were being overlooked. 
Can I point out something? That shows up on a fairly regular basis in every single church. Somebody thinks they're being missed. I'm not saying it isn't true. I'm saying that's kind of an ongoing struggle for the church. Let me remind you of something, folks. Success doesn't mean the absence of problems. Success may well be the cause of problems. Uh, the needs were real, caring for widows who had no means of support. Whether it was real, most likely, or merely imagined, it pointed out that it needed to be administered more closely by someone officially recognized and set apart by the church. Now, let me bring this in as well. It seems pretty obvious, doesn't it, that there was a defined, recognizable membership in the church. They knew who were members and who weren't. There was clarity. These widows were all members. I mean, just prior to this, the discipline of Ananias and Sapphira declared quite clearly they were members. In fact, their deaths made those who would be casual members actually terrified to join them. You read that clearly in the text. Of the rest, no one dared join them. And then just a verse or so later, but the Lord continued to add to the church. Hmm. Now some may argue, well, that doesn't mean they had membership roles or they had formal membership. That may be true. But we must keep in mind that joining oneself to Christ in the first century was an act of religious and cultural rebellion. To identify with Jesus Christ and his people, you set yourself apart automatically. Many families disowned family members who named the name of Christ. Many of them found themselves impoverished. They were part of the family business. All at once, the families had a funeral and kicked them to the curb. In our time, the social stigma of joining a church has for the most part been extinguished, although we may well be entering an era when that will be more true than it's ever been. We live in a time of failed and failing commitments on a host of fronts. Whether marriages that seem to easily and frequently break down, parent-child covenants broken, public promises and politics made and broken. But isn't it interesting? Now hear this. You, you can't get married without making a commitment. You actually do something. You join together. The words, what God hath joined together. You can't enter military service. You can't be in a civic organization. You can't get into the coffee of the month club without joining something. Why is it that we balk here? We'll respect everyone else but a local church as it sets the requirements and parameters of membership. We'll respect our own preferences over the convictions of a local church. I know you said, well, you slipped that in, preacher. Yes, I did, without apology. You see, my friend, you serve in the context of a congregation. If you've put your faith in Christ, in a sense, you are already a deacon in a broad sense. Above all, 
Christian believers are those who walk in the footsteps of the ultimate deacon, the suffering servant who came not to be deaconed to, but to deacon. And they give his life as a ransom for many. We're not saying there's no distinction of being formally or informally recognized. But my friend, if you're not serving others, you're not living the Christian life. Let me just say that as plain and blunt as I know how. If you're not serving others, you are not living the Christian life. It's in this practice of serving that the Jerusalem church recognized men who were qualified to actually be given a task and ultimately the title servant, deacon. It is not a small thing. Physical needs matter. But the other thing the text shouts at us is that spiritual support is essential. What the apostles propose is what they consider the only reasonable solution. They didn't say, we're sorry, we'll take this up ourselves and run with it. We obviously are missing doing something. No. Nor did they simply ignore it and say, oh, hush your whining. Get out of here. Go join that other church down yeah, There wasn't another church to join down the road. They said, church pick men for this task, we'll entrust this to them because, number one, it needs to be done, and number two, the ministry of the word and prayer must not be diminished. Notice the language that's used here. Verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, bear in mind, I am not saying that elders and apostles are the same thing. They are not. The apostolic office, as we see it in the New Testament, was a unique, limited, time-defined by the extent of their lives office. However, if elders truly, elders, pastors, however you want to say it, overseers, if they faithfully use the Bible, teach the Bible, model the Scriptures, they have taken up, in a sense, the continuation of this apostolic commitment, the ministry of the Word and prayer. Those two things are essential in the life of the church. You read in Acts 2.42 that that over 3,000 converted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. By the time you have the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, elders are very much seen and present in the Jerusalem church as well as other congregations. My friends, let me say, as I've watched this develop over the course of my life, I think one of the things that has been the most harmful to Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, over the course of my lifetime has been the failure to raise up a multiplicity of godly leaders to serve, both as elders and as deacons. It has not been done as it should have been done. Too many pastors today have delusions of grandeur, I think, and take upon it themselves that they are the man. Oops. It should never be about the man. 
spiritual maturity is required for both. The character requirements for both offices are virtually identical. The only significant difference in the requirements in 1 Timothy 3 is that an elder must be able to teach. It's not that a deacon can't. After all, it said he has to hold the truths of the faith, but rather it's not a requirement to perform the office of servant to the congregation. Now hear me when I say this, my brothers and sisters. An elder must be willing to serve. If he will not serve, he cannot lead. Further, when you read the character traits there in 1 Timothy 3 or in Titus chapter 1, let me make this abundantly clear. Every single requirement in those lists is expected of every Christian. This is how you, believer, are to live your life. But when it comes to the matter of being an elder or a deacon, it is required to be present. Not perfection, not that there's never a stumble or a failure, but rather these elements of character are so clearly displayed that everybody goes, absolutely, that's right. I see that in him. Can I also point out, you don't see anything here about charismatic gifts in this? It's not giftedness. It's character. Character. The requirements, my brothers, require you to care for your spiritual life you and I must never drop the pursuit of godliness. This is our lifetime pursuit. Finally, I'd say this. There is a mutual support in this model. Each should recognize the importance of the other. Each should support the other privately and publicly. Each should pray for the other. It includes support supporting one another and faithfulness to the congregation. My brothers, I don't know how to make this any plainer. Just the simple act of showing up cannot be overstated. If you're going to have hands laid upon you to lead and serve in this church, then show up. That should be non-controversial. I say that for all our benefit. I'm not saying you have to show up for every single event, but rather that unless you're providentially hindered, you show up for events which are for the whole church. Certainly, there are providential things. There are things that cannot be helped. Nobody's speaking to that. What's being said here, my friends, is we have to demonstrate as leaders, as the ordained, that we are serious about our commitment. Why should anybody else be? We're not. I know some of you say, well, preacher, you have to show up. Yes, you're right. It does seem to be a condition of employment. I don't think I'd get very far just randomly not being here. Well, maybe I'd get further than I intend. Elders and deacons, the men who are about to undertake these roles today, 
serving and leading go together. It includes mundane things. Can I tell you that a lot of what gets done is not all that exciting? It is dull. It's time-consuming. There are times it's a bit frustrating. Just to let you in on a little secret, if you don't already know, sheep have teeth. And they occasionally use them in inappropriate ways. But is this not part of living the life together? I encourage you, my brothers. Matt, Kyle, you have demonstrated these character traits or else we wouldn't be doing this together. The church sees these in you. Now, we're going to transition from the charge to us in a few moments reading our covenant together. Now, Baptists have two things that pretty much define us. One is a confession. A confession is a statement, this we believe. This church has a confession. Every church ought to have a confession. So you tell everybody, this is what we believe. Here's who we are. The second document is a covenant. The covenant is not this we believe, it is rather this we will do. Here's how we promise to live with one another as members of the same congregation. In a moment, we'll put this on the screen, we'll read it together. And even if you're a guest today, if you embrace the, the spirit of this, we welcome you to read it with us. To the candidates, my brothers, as we read the covenant together as a church, we're charging you to take this in a new way. You now affirm it with us as officers of the church. Your concern for the church is now officially larger than just you and your family. You are, in reciting this, pledging yourself not only to live and confess this, but to serve and lead in light of the covenant. Church, we read this together today as a reminder of what we mean by being members of this body. The Lord doesn't call us merely as individuals. In fact, it's an overemphasis on the individual in our time that has led to anemic Christians and anemic churches. We are a community of faith. We're called to do this life of a believer together with other believers. We confess now what we believe about the church and also what we promise we'll do as fellow believers. At the end of this covenant is the little word, amen. Now for some of you, amen doesn't mean anything other than sit down. It's supposed to be more than that. The word means affirmation, true, reality. I affirm. Yes, it is so. Elders, when your amen is said, you're affirming your personal commitment to this covenant and that you'll willingly shepherd the church in keeping it. Deacons, your amen is affirming your personal commitment to this covenant and that you'll also willingly serve the church in keeping it. Church, your amen is affirming your personal commitment to the covenant and that you will pray for your elders and deacons as they discharge their duties 
for the congregation. Let's stand and recite this together. Have we got it? It's behind me, it's not in front of me. There it is. All right. Together now, having as we trust been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. Are we not in the same place? Sorry about that. I should look up. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. You may be seated. We come now to the portion of the service, the laying on of hands and ordination prayer. We begin with prayer for Matt Miller, laying on of hands as he is set apart as an elder. Matt, if you would come here, and I always give this as the option, kneel there at the chair, or if your knees will not allow that, just sit. <laughs> All the ordained men, my brothers, even if you're inactive at this point, if you're retired, we ask that you come, be here with Matt. 
come around. You guys know. If you're not close enough to lay hands on Matt, put your hands on the shoulder of the guy closest to you. All right? Now, what is this laying on of hands? Is something magical about to happen? Not at all. This is merely us showing solidarity that we embrace this brother, both our brothers, as they do these tasks. Vernon Cooper, Matt's father-in-law, is going to give the ordination prayer. 